we as parents probably need to think about how we're giving feedback and not give a trophy for everything, like not be critical, but like maybe ask questions about, hey, what were you trying to achieve with this? Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Carolyn Leilaglu's new middle grade novel is Beneath the Swirling Sky, book one of the Restorationist Trilogy. It's a book about art, creativity, and reclaiming the creative energy that comes so naturally to small children. It's also about a family of people who can go into old paintings and walk around in them. Like her main character, Vincent, Carolyn is the granddaughter of art collectors and the daughter of an art teacher. She's also the mother of four wildly creative children. Carolyn Leilaglu, I'm so glad to have you on the Habit Podcast to talk about your new book, Beneath the Swirling Sky. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me back. Welcome, Prego. Um, <laughs> let's um, tell, I mean, let's just start with you giving the the elevator pitch for this book. Tell me about this book. What do you what do you tell people when they when they ask you what your book is about? Yeah. So the short version is uh, it's about Vincent, who is a 12 year old kid who has given up on art until he comes to learn that his family are the last of the restorationists, which is a secret society with the ability to travel into paintings and the duty to protect them. So when his little sister disappears into Van Gogh's The Starry Night, he and his cousin Georgia um, have to go in and rescue her. Aha. So uh, middle grade fiction. This is Mm -hmm, fiction, correct? (laughs) <laughs> it is it is fiction it's technically classified as fantasy even though it's you know a version of our world right every yeah. every painting in the book is a real painting um every place they go in the in the book is a real place or based on a real place the the grandfather's ranch is based on my grandparents ranch and house um mm. so yeah fun um and so vincent's I love, by the way, that he goes into Starry Night. That's such a uh, a, a fun. The idea of going into that particular painting is especially yeah. appealing to me. How did you settle on Starry Night as the entry point for uh, for yeah. your characters? I think that was an easy one for me, just because it's my favorite. It's kind of been my favorite for a long time, um, and it's just kind of a painting that. Uh, pulls you in anyways, right? If yeah, you right. have ever had the privilege of especially seeing it in person, um, it's it's just fascinating. It's so the paint is so thick and the the way the sky swirls, like Van Gogh has really captured the way a sky feels, right? Mm-hmm. Not like how it really looks, but like how it feels. Yeah, right. Um, and I just love that about the painting. It it has this sense of movement that kind of lends itself to um being something that you could go into and like really feel alive and yeah have you been to one of these uh the the things where you step into the painting the I don't know. yeah i i absolutely have i felt obligated to go because sure. i was in the middle of revisions of uh, book one or maybe no actually i was in the middle of writing book two at the time that uh-huh. um i took <coughs> excuse me i took my um 16 year old son who's uh, an artist in his own right um and we really enjoyed it it um it's not the same as seeing the art in person, but it is a very yeah. cool experience. I like what they yeah. did. So you you had already written 
at least book one before you even yeah. knew that, that such a thing existed as these immersive painting things? I may have seen something on Facebook, like not knowing it was going to be a thing that traveled around. When I was yeah. writing book one, it was in the middle of 2020. So uh-huh. no one was going anywhere. No one was going <laughs> to museums or to art exhibits. And um, so a lot of the research I did, you know, I wasn't able to go places to research the book. I had to kind of look up everything online. And yeah. um, and thankfully to Google Street View, there's actually, they have a walkthrough of the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. Oh, really? which was one of the settings in this book. And um, I mean, thank goodness for that, because there, <laughs> there's no yeah. way I could even get there in, in normal circumstances, not much less uh, right. during COVID. So, yeah. yeah. You you used the phrase a minute ago that, that, that Starry Night kind of pulls you in anyway. Um, and we, we, we think of, it's, it's not unusual for people to talk about a, a painting that kind of draws you in. I love the way you turn that into that sort of metaphorical language of being drawn into a painting. You're treating it literally here, right? People really yeah. are <laughs> going into the painting. Um, yeah. I guess sort of the way, uh, uh, is it Jill Pohl? Who is it who, who goes into the painting at the beginning of? Um, yeah, it's uh, so funny. In the, the voice Don of Treader, the Don yeah. Treader, I think is what you're thinking of. Yeah. yeah. And it's uh, Edmund and Lucy and Eustace. And I had, that was my favorite book growing up. And I did not even make the connection until someone mentioned that to me later. Really? Like, oh, just like in Voyage of the Don Treader. And oh, I was that's like, funny. oh, yeah, I guess they. <laughs> I guess they do kind of go into the painting, but it's in, you know, in, um, in the restorationists, when they go into a painting, it, it literally is, it's like a painting, but alive, right? It still looks like a painting versus, mm. you know, when they go into the painting, they actually are going into Narnia and Voyage of the uh-huh. Dawn Treader. So it's, um, yeah, that's one. Of yeah. The so I guess in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, it's just a portal to another right. world. And yeah. you're talking about actually entering into the, the painting. Exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Um, okay, so you mentioned that your main character, Vincent, who is named for Vincent Van Gogh, and every all mm-hmm. the kids in this story are named for some some painter. Um, mm-hmm. You say he's given up on art. And I'd love to hear you talk m- more about that. That's such an interesting idea. He's at the mm-hmm. age when you start getting self-conscious, right? He's a 12-year-old boy. Um and he's uh, the other. He's got a little sister who's too young to be self-conscious. He's got a yeah. cousin who, for whatever reason, isn't self-conscious. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd love to hear you talk about about this idea. Yeah, um, the idea is one from personal experience. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I was never in a, an artist, like a visual artist, but mm-hmm. from the time I was little, I wanted to write, and I was trying to you know write a novel when I was in fourth grade, and I wrote for my little, some stories for my little school newspaper in fifth grade. But then like right around middle school, like Vincent, I thought, I can't do this. I'm not good at this. It's hard. I was one of those kids that school kind of came easy for. So I thought, well, this is, this is difficult. So I must not be good enough Mm -hmm. to do this. Right. Um, I did keep writing poetry, oddly enough, just because I had friends that also wrote it. So it seemed more acceptable uh-huh. kind of form form of art to continue. But yeah, I I gave up on art and I really regret that now. You know, I didn't start writing again until I had kids. Um, uh-huh. Something about having kids and that makes you do scary things. You kind of <laughs> gain, yeah. gain some confidence and wisdom and perspective. And yeah. um 
you know, what I would love to say to kids who were in my situation, whether it's visual art or music or writing or whatever it is, 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 Hey, don't stop. Like it's, it's hard because it's worthwhile, right? Yeah. Keep, keep doing the the thing, keep making art. Um, and uh, what's interesting is Georgia Vincent's cousin, you brought up that she is not um, self-conscious about making art. And she, that character is actually homeschooled. And mm-hmm. I do think I'd see a little bit of a difference between um, kids that are at school feeling a lot more peer pressure versus homeschooled kids have a little bit more time and maybe space and perspective from um, from other people. Um, I've actually seen, you know, my own kids, like they share their writing or their art or whatever with other homeschool friends and and receive a lot of encouragement, which is kind of mm-hmm. amazing. So I do feel like homeschooling can be a little bit of a shelter for some some people um, yeah. in a good way. Yeah. Shelter well, in a good way. Yeah. Like usually shelter in a good way. Yeah. Homeschool kids are sheltered. It's bad, but actually, <laughs> you know, there's a good kind of shelter as well. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that, that, Vincent specifically talks about is the encouragement that his parents gave or are giving to his little sister with her art. And um, as he's grown up, he's come to see his parents' encouragement as a lie, right? Because he he's right. encountered critical peers or, or whatever it is that he that he encounters. Um, I'm interested in that idea, right? The 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 kid who who's always been encouraged by his parents. Um, he looks at his, he looks at his little sister's art that the parent puts on the refrigerator, I guess. And, <laughs> and he sees that it's not that great, but the parents act like it's great. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm, I may be mis misrepresenting, but I think he says, I think he's concerned about what his sister's going to discover when she, yeah. when she figures out that her parents have been lying, <laughs> that is really right, not right. That good. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because especially I think as kids, um, well, I am probably as adults too, like we tend to value the wrong people's, um, feedback of us, right? Like he's, he's like taking the school bullies feedback as truth and what his parents say as lies. But I do think uh, conversely, like as parents, you know, when the, our kids are little, like, of course, we're going to like encourage everything they're doing. And because it is great, you know, maybe for the age that they are, right? Like we're evaluating it with the perspective of time. But mm-hmm. then if we're always continuing as our kids like age into maybe the teen years and we're like, oh, yes, this is every single thing, you know, so wonderful, you know, they're going to sense there's a falsehood there. Like there needs to be like a difference between when they work really hard on something and we can tell like, wow, this is, this shows a lot of effort. Like I can see that this is really amazing. That needs, you need to be able to have a level that you can go to and say, you know, so they can believe you so that you're not saying like, oh, hey, this sketch, wow, this five minute sketch, it's so amazing. You know, like (laughs) we, we as parents probably need to think about how we're giving feedback and not give a trophy for everything, like not be critical, but like maybe ask questions about, hey, what were you trying to achieve with this? You know, or Mm -hmm. like, um, just to know your child and know what kind of feedback they can receive, of course, but to actually have like a, a, a difference in uh, that will help them along, right? Like right. Um, as they're getting older, right? Yeah, and I think it's important also, uh, you know, to talk to talk in terms of looks. Like you really tried here. It looks like you. Yeah. Really could, I mean, and congratulate 
um, the right. effort. Or find the one, like something that is really great about this one thing, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah, exactly. And you're what you're saying, like you really tried versus like a five minute sketch, like, oh, I like this element in it. What if you developed it further? You know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. what if you made this into you know, or have you thought about, you know? Yeah. There are ways to move kids into a growth mindset Yeah. instead of, you know, the idea that, that um, somehow you're just, this art is good just because you did it, but Mm -hmm. uh, what's the, I'm sure there, I'm sure there are child development experts who could articulate this better, but, but in short, there are ways to, um, to encourage kids in terms of in our own selves for that matter in terms of um, uh, effort as you, mm-hmm. as you continue to um, work to get better, you know, that, that's what we can encourage you know, yeah. rather than you're, you're just a, um, I don't know. I, I guess I, I certainly detected the difference when I was young between, mm-hmm. and, and maybe would have benefited more perhaps from feedback that was, encouraging me to work to continue uh, the effort rather than. Right. Cause it can be equally dangerous to give your kid the impression that they're this prodigy and then they actually will end up feeling more pressure. Like, well, then yeah. I've made something that I can see is not good. Like, why, why is that? Right. Yeah. I can see that I, I made something bad or like when my kids say like, I, I'm so bad at whatever, like drawing people or, you know, playing this piece on the piano or whatever it is. Yeah. I'm like, you know what? You you get better at what you do, right? right? So if you're bad at drawing people, draw some more people. Like if there's yeah. something that you want to get better at, you got to work at it, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think encouraging that growth mindset is, like you said, a huge uh, factor there. Yeah. Um, you say you you have at, at least one child who's really interested in visual art. I do. Yeah. Mo- more than one. But yeah, like, so um, my, my son is, uh, I think, feel like very talented at art my uh I mean all my kids are super creative I feel like and then my youngest is um she's very artistic as well and likes collage Uh, my Hmm. third born loves to crochet and craft and my oldest loves to write like they all are super yeah yeah (laughs) I'm always amazed like how how creative they are yeah yeah and and what are you doing to encourage their their creativity yeah I think um so one one thing is, you know, it's one of the reasons why we chose to homeschool is to kind of give that space for mm-hmm. um, having time to be creative. Um, I try to, you know, the ones who are interested in different craft type things, I try to make sure that they have um, supplies. We look for, you know, maybe videos or books about how to get better at whatever whatever it is that they're um, they're wanting to do, and then just kind of knowing. Uh, when to give feedback and when not, like I, you know, I think as, as an author myself, like I had to step way back from giving feedback to my child who likes to write like several years back because that was too much pressure. Um, Mm -hmm. because since this is my job as well. Um, so, uh, you know, I would ask her, what kind of feedback do you want? Do you just want me to enjoy getting to read this or are you looking for feedback? And so I think being clear, beforehand um with the older child is very helpful yeah do you ask that every time she shows you something i i do she doesn't show me stuff that often Uh um but usually i think she's not wanting um 
feedback from me. She has friends that she shares it with that she gets feedback from. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one thing that Vincent deals with is perfectionism. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what's your relationship with perfectionism? Yeah. Well, anyone who's been listening to your podcast for a while, if they heard our last uh, conversation where we talked about my picture book, Libraries Most Wanted, would know that I'm a bit of a recovering perfectionist. Um, So, yeah, um, I think perfectionism can be a real roadblock for us. Not that we shouldn't work to get better at stuff. Like we just, we're we're talking about the growth mindset, but feeling like, something has to be perfect or it's not worthwhile. Kind of like that mindset I was talking about when I was in fifth grade and stopped writing mm-hmm. um, that it wasn't, it wasn't perfect. It wasn't an A plus 100. So mm-hmm. I must not be good enough. And perfectionism, the lie perfectionism tells you is it has to be perfect or you can't do it at all. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's not what art is. Art is about experimenting about playing um you know if my kids they make a mistake with in something they're drawing like oh i've messed it up it's like there's no mistakes in art how can you make this into part of your drawing or your painting like what can you do how can we you know use that mistake and find something something good from it so yeah Yeah. (laughs) um in tell me about some mistakes you've made in writing and how you um and do you incorporate your mistakes? Do you now the nice thing about writing is you can just edit yeah. put it out in a way that's, <laughs> yeah, that's people not the don't same see in, all in the visual art. Yeah. Yeah. Um it's interesting, yeah, because I'm sure a lot of people feel like, oh, you know, you have this book and it must have just come out this way and they don't know mm-hmm. how many millions of drafts I have, you know. <laughs> um and even after some people might be surprised, even after the book was um under contract from Waterbrook, when I got my editor's feedback, um, she didn't say you have to cut these chapters or rewrite whatever. But the questions that she asked kind of led me to understand that I had like a whole series of several chapters that needed to go, Mm. needed to replot certain aspects of the book um, and fill um, fill in different places um so i probably cut like a good five chapters uh from the wow from the book which was painful yeah um but uh, is the book five chapters shorter are you saying you cut five and then added i probably added about the same amount i know um my i'm i think coming from picture books i tend to be an under writer and under describer Uh so my editor is (laughs) always pushing me to add more descriptions or Mm -hmm. more um, like internality or more physical reactions, like that kind of stuff. So um, usually my uh, books kind of grow as they um, go Mm -hmm. through revisions instead Uh of shrinking. Uh So um, yeah, so we did cut those, but then um, they, yeah, those same probably amount of words got added back. But um, a lot of that, I would say, exploration and backstory stuff did inform what I know about the characters going forward, right? Mm-hmm. Because it they were explorations of who these characters are in different situations. So I knew things about the characters, even though those events didn't necessarily happen, mm-hmm. um, which is which has affected a book too. 
So, yeah. Um, can you give and can you be more specific about that without giving away too much? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, um, in the original book, when they first go into the Starry Night to try to find Lily, and that's, so that's not a spoiler since I already said, <laughs> I already yeah, said it at least. I think that's on the that's um, on the back of the book. That's on the book jacket <laughs> copy, I think. So originally, they actually went down into the town to look for her there, mm -hmm. um, and uh, so the since Van Gogh spoke French and he was in France during this time, the people in the town speak French and guess what mm. Georgia does too. Ah. And so I found that out, you know, as I was writing that, Oh, Georgia, actually, you know, when I look up, you know, what her parents do, they work for Interpol and that's actually based in France. So of course she speaks French. She mm. lives in France, you know, mm. like she, she's traveled all over, of course. So she knows snippets of other languages. So mm -hmm. that's something that didn't really come up in book one anymore, but it was something that I knew about the character. So, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Let's talk about, um, actual some content of the book itself you got the distortionists you got the restorationists i want to that's right tell me tell me who the distortionists are who the restorationists are and by the way this is book one of a of a series of how many three three, three. books okay yeah. yeah so um the it's probably easier to describe the well i guess i'll describe the distortionists first so the distortionists they're the bad guys obviously <laughs> um and and they um I see them as being in it for power, basically, right? They okay. steal paintings, they um, leave distortions in paintings. And so that would be when they're inside a painting, like adding something to the painting that is against the artist's original intentions, right? That would cause the viewer of the painting, even if they can't visibly see the distortion, to feel mm -hmm. differently, usually in a, a very negative way. And um, that those would be ripples that spread throughout society um, and cause negative negative things in society. And so the restorationist job is to um, to stop that, right? So mm -hmm. they restore um, paintings that are uh, have distortions. So um, Uncle Leo in the book, um, that's his specific uh, restorationist skill. He's a restorer, so he does mm -hmm. that kind of full time. Um, and then, but other characters like theoretically could could help inside a painting to fix a distortion. Um, and then they try to um, recover stolen paintings. So that's part of what George's parents do um, mm -hmm. and their work with Interpol. But they have, you know, this secret heads up by being able to use their restorationist gifts to um, find paintings more easily. Can you give an example of the, the kind of distortion that a distortionist might do in your in your stories? Yeah, so the one that um one of the ones that they see in um in the book is uh one of the distortionists or um has painted a like a swastika on something, right? So that obviously is a very evil symbol. We have a lot of associations with that. And um so someone seeing it from outside the painting theoretically would get those like ideas and and um associations but um they can the distortionist also can alter character like people inside a painting right painted people or or other things yeah there's a lot more of that in book two and i don't okay. want to give away how interesting okay. it gets but there's there's a lot more <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah no but i love this idea that that because art creates culture mm -hmm. as you distort art you're somehow distorting culture yeah yeah um, I, I also think of it as like um, 
you know, the line between art and propaganda. I, yeah. I don't know if you've ever listened to um, Vesper Stamper's podcast, Vesperisms, but um, I, she talks a lot about um, art versus propaganda and has mm-hmm. kind of really informed my thinking about that. Um, and, you know, any, any, any art can turn into propaganda, right? Like, and, and when it's propaganda for your side, you don't notice it as often, right? Mm-hmm. It's yeah. easier to gloss over, but I feel like um, it's kind of been a trend in, in modern films and movies and TV shows um, to be more propagandistic, right? Like whatever your hobby horse issue is, you mm-hmm. know, that it gets added to that show in a way that is not natural to the story. And that's what makes it propaganda is it becomes preachy, right? Yeah. In a way that's trying to um trying to inform your decision, like it tell you what to think instead of uh, um what art should do is ask questions and um make suppositions and, and make you think, right? Mm-hmm. And not just spoon feed you yeah. uh, those answers, right? So you have you, you're coming at this story from a from a moral position. Is that fair to say? Yeah, you you, sure. you have a moral yeah. position that informs the way you you tell the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um how in how is your story uh what's the difference between coming from more moral position and mm-hmm. writing a propagandistic story? So everyone has a moral position, right? You're you're not gonna you're not an AI, so. right? Yeah, like, I mean, it's not just I hope so. Know, it's, right? It just is necessary. Uh, <laughs> it's just the way um, it is, right? Yeah, you you have a moral um, position as as a person, right? Like mm-hmm. you have values, and those values are going to inform your story. But there's a difference between um, having values that infiltrate the way the way that you craft a story and and you're serving the story versus like okay i'm going to tell a story but what i really want to do is make sure people know this right make sure people get this point and understand it exactly rather than um a story that brings up like everything you always learn better when it's your own idea, right? Like, like the Socratic method, right? Like Mm -hmm. bringing you to, um, to an idea that you, you form that opinion yourself, right. Mm -hmm. Through conversation, through thought or whatever. And I think that's what good art does, right. It leads you to think or feel about, about something, um, in a way that you're able to process and come to your conclusion versus propaganda says, this is the way it is. And you have to accept my premise, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or I might distort the cause and effect, the the natural cause and effect in the right. story in such a way right. that, or people might act, behave in ways that, that people don't behave in the world God made. Exactly. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great point. Yeah. 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 Um, no, I, I, I appreciate you, you're talking about this idea of, I mean, you didn't use this language exactly, but engage in the reader's judgment. Yeah. You know, creating the, at at least creating the illusion that the reader has reached these conclusions on their own. (laughs) (laughs) They they need to have reached them on their own. I mean, like maybe I've, I've been a helper, right. But like Mm they, they need to be able to, otherwise, first of all, I don't think it's going to stick if you, Mm -hmm. you know, just like kids who grow up in the church and then, and then go out and, you know, go their own way. It, it, 
they never came to their own conclusion, did they? Mm-hmm. They were just spoon fed something and then they spit it out when they left. Yeah. You know, you have to, you have to come to your own conclusion, right? Yeah. And that's the only way it's going to stick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you have an epigraph. You have two epigraphs, but one of them is from from Picasso. Every child is an artist. The problem is how to remain an artist once he grows up. Yeah. And of course, you know, we've got this main character who's still a child, and yet he's he's starting to lose um, that innate sense of creativity. Um, yeah. How so you mentioned that you that you lost some of your creative fire uh, mm-hmm. about the, about the same age Vincent did. You said some of it came back after you were a mother. Um, yeah. <laughs> how, how do people keep this alive? How do, how do young people keep it alive? How do adults get it back? Yeah. Um, I think that creativity is something something we all have, but it's something that needs to be practiced in order to um, to grow it and to maintain it. So um, I... I know Jennifer Trefton always talks about having a sense of play. And I think mm-hmm. that is probably um a really good way. So and and people who have kids, I think if you're um if you're doing a, a creative um ac- action or whatever with with your kids, that's always um I think gonna be encouraging to both of you. Like mm-hmm. I cannot draw stick figures even, but I'll sit and draw with my kids sometimes and we'll create something silly together. Um, And I feel like that kind of opens up that sense of play um, for them. And, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll get ideas too, or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, yeah, I think, I think practicing that sense of play is is really important. Is writing the only uh, art form that you do? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Probably. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say no one would say I'm like a, an amazing like house decorator or anything. That was one of my mom's uh, top art forms. I think uh-huh. um, she she was a, an art major actually in college. But yeah, she always had a like immaculately decorated house, uh-huh. and that's probably not me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like to cook, but I'm probably that's probably not an art form really for me either. So uh-huh. yeah, I think writing is probably my uh-huh. my one and only. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I'll help Demetrius with a song, but again, that's writing. Uh-huh, <laughs> that's yes. words, so. uh-huh. <laughs> hey, there is an audiobook of um of the story of Beneath the Swirling Sky, correct? There is, yes. I haven't gotten to hear it yet, but I did get to help select the narrator, which was okay. very fun and difficult. Which means it's not you. It's not me. Okay. <laughs> I I said I do not want to do it because I wanted it to be good. <laughs> okay. All right. I do not feel I have that spe- specific skill. I know a lot of authors who do their own books that do a great job, but I don't think I would do an excellent job. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. So, yeah, I'm and, very excited about the to hear it. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's funny that you haven't heard it yet. Yeah, <laughs> I have not at all. Maybe by the time this airs, you will have heard it. Oh yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Um, and then tell me about the. You got a website for the for the. Um, story? Yes. So um, if people go to the restorationist.com, um, there's uh, more info about the book. There um, is uh, 
probably still going to be where you can read the first chapter. I don't know if that needs to go down once the book comes out. Um, but also I have a, a freebie for parents um, if, who are wanting to kind of delve more into looking at art with their kids. It mm-hmm. is a um, Charlotte Mason style picture study with a restorationist twist. Um, so if people are interested in that, they can find that at therestorationist.com. Scroll to the bottom. Well, tell me what that means, a Charlotte Mason, Charlotte Mason oh, style. So Charlotte Mason was, um, I think, an educator and I believe the 1900s and a lot of um, a lot of homeschoolers model their um, homeschool on her um, educational model. And one of the things that she does is talks about is spreading the feast. And so that includes doing um, studies of music and of art. And so um, picture study is where you look at the art of um, a particular artist for several you know weeks in a row, you'll look at a different picture and there's a certain way you go about that to really observe the picture well. And, but it's not complicated or onerous, but, um, and I've done this with uh, my kids when we used to um, attend a homeschool co-op and um, I I feel like they, they still like recognize some of the artists that we Mm -hmm. looked at, which is a very cool thing. Yeah. All these years later, but. That's neat. And so at the restorationist.com is the art available, the the art that is, that's from your story is a, can you see that at that website? Um, I no, there's not. I don't have the art there. Um, in the back of the book, there's a list of all of the paintings that are in, um, in the story. There's mm-hmm. not like printed copies of the paintings in the book because, right. um, at least one of them is still under copyright, and okay. you know, they, it'd be black and white and not really worth looking at. But <laughs> you could use that as a guide to, um, yeah. to go look at paintings with your kids and yeah, be, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. uh, are there so is it copyright issues that keep you from being able to put that on the on the website? The um, those those most of the, like can can you put a Van Gogh painting on a, on a website? Are there issues there? You can put a Van Gogh painting on a website. There's a Norman Rockwell. Um, there are a couple of Norman Rockwells in there that they go through, um, and those are still copyright protected. And I know um, in the I think to me, it's like, I can't do all of it. So, <laughs> so we're not going to do, we so we just have a list and people can look it up. Like there are definitely things that you can find online, but they're not things yeah. that I could legally like put every one of them in the, yeah, right. Yeah. And the website, but yeah. yeah. Um, all right, Carolyn, uh, last question. I think, you know, to expect this one, um, who are the writers who make you want to write? Okay. Um, I'm going to say Cassie Beasley. I, I just love her books. I think I said her last time. Um, okay. <laughs> it's always the same people, right? Um, I, I'll say, here's a new one. Uh, Kate Albus, she, she wrote, um, where to hang the moon. And it's okay. just like such a touching or no a place to hang the moon. Um, I would love to write characters that are as moving as, as those ones and as endearing. So maybe someday. <laughs> uh, Katie Albus's characters. What's so great about them? Gosh, I don't know. Like, I love the family dynamics between the siblings. I like sibling stories a lot. There's something Narnia-esque about her characters. I don't know if it's just that they're um, in England around the same time period, but something something about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have to say, I mean, I, I love the the family relationships, the sibling relationships in your book. I think you did a great job. Oh, thank of, you. <laughs> of, uh, you know, the way that that uh, Vincent feels responsible for Lily mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. and their sort of sweet uh, relationship with one another. So, um, well, so I, I don't know Kate Alps's books. Maybe she's maybe she's better at it than you, but I don't know. <laughs> I think you've done a great job. So oh, well, I appreciate that. <laughs> well, Carolyn Lozlu, thank you so much for being here. It's always a pleasure to talk, and uh, 
let's talk again soon. Uh, Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.